Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I'm sure that you do, would you please take them out? I want you to go to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 is where we are as we are uh, continuing our series on the book of Daniel that God is in control. And as you are turning there, um, I would just like uh, for us to spend a few minutes uh, thanking the good Lord for still working miracles. I don't think you have any idea what I'm about to say. Somehow, some way, yesterday, my much-beloved but beleaguered Texas Tech Red Raiders managed to snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat, and it feels good to be a winner today. Amen? It feels good. I know that uh, there is a family in our church who are uh, Baylor Bears fans, and um, they were my enemy yesterday. I'm just letting you know. And uh, I will rub it in as much as possible because when you only win twice in a year, you take everything you can. Amen? But it does feel good to be on the winning side uh, today. And, uh, but anyways, hopefully by the end of this message, uh, you will be saying something very similar that it feels good to be on the winning side. That it feels good to be on the winning side as today in Daniel chapter 7 we are going to look um, at the fourth beast. We're going to look at the fourth beast, and he is going to be identified as the Antichrist here in Daniel chapter 7. Now, in 1939, there was a movie that was released that you probably have never heard of. I think you've heard of it. The Wizard of Oz. When it was released, for the first 10 years in its existence, The Wizard of Oz didn't make any money. It didn't make any money at all. But when it was re-released in 1949, since then, it has become the most watched movie of all time. And for those of you who have watched this movie over and over again, um, we are introduced to some great characters in this movie, right? You have Dorothy, Dorothy and her dog, You had the scarecrow, if I only had a brain. The tin man, if I only had a heart, if I only had passion. You had the lion, if I only had a nerve, courage. You had the wicked witch of the weast, uh, the weast. (laughs) Whatever. I just, it just just feels good to be a winner. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) It just feels great. The wicked witch of the West. You had the, the wizard of Oz, and then you had the munchkins. In the movie, we had some great lines that we remember. Dorothy said, there's no place like home. She also said, Toto, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. But I think one of the greatest lines in that movie is when Dorothy and the scarecrow and the tin man are together and they say this, lions and tigers and bears, oh my lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Well, here in Daniel chapter 7, it is lions and bears and leopards, oh my, plus one dreadful, terrifying beast, oh no. That's where we are. That's where we are in Daniel chapter 7. Now, for those of you who Maybe you missed last week and haven't watched it online, which you're always able to go back onto our website and uh, watch the previous week's message. But just to catch you up just briefly here in Daniel chapter 7 and to remind you that the book of Daniel is divided neatly into two parts. The first six chapters are biographical. You remember this? They tell stories. They tell stories that, that happened to Daniel and happened to his three friends that, that we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire. But, but it tells the story of Daniel and these boys and other Jewish people who were, who were deported into Babylon, to present-day Iraq. It continues to tell their stories of serving with, with various pagan kings, and it, and it tells their story of staying steadfast, remaining true to the one true living God in the midst of, a, of an ungodly culture, in the midst of a culture that is going the opposite direction of, of what the Scriptures say. And again and again throughout chapters 1 through 6, we see Daniel and his friends standing up to pressure 
They stand firm, and, and ultimately they are elected and selected to take high places of authority in, ungodly, in an ungodly government. Well, when we come to chapter 7, this is a significant pivot. It's a significant pivot as we turn from, from biographical and now we go to prophecy. In chapters 7 through 12, it is what we call eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times. The book of Daniel along with Revelation and even parts of Isaiah and some parts of Jeremiah, um, it is called apocalyptic literature. I think I have it up here so that you can spell it correctly, yes. Apocalyptic literature, which simply means it's writings about the apocalypse. What's the apocalypse? The apocalypse is the end times. It, 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 and it truly means, the word apocalypse, it's the end times, but, but, it's, but it's the pulling back the covers. It's the looking to see what has been revealed. So in chapters 7 through 12, what we are going to see is this. We're going to see that God does not hide anything from his people. You need to hold on to that. God does not hide anything from us. God and the God we serve in Christianity, it is not a secret society that has a secret handshake. We are not secret individuals. Why? Because God is not secret. God reveals himself. God reveals all throughout history, all throughout Scripture, he reveals what he is going to do. It's going to happen, and before it happens, he's going to tell you. God showed himself and showed what he was going to do through Moses. Abraham, God showed him. Daniel, God showed him. John the Revelator, who wrote the book of Revelation, God showed him. And so one of the things that we can take practically from this chapter and the following chapters is this. God always reveals himself to his people, and he lets them know what he is going to do. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 22, and we've already looked at Daniel chapter 2, but, but Daniel writes these words. It's, it's in his prayer to God, and he says this to God, thanking him that, that it is he, God, who reveals the profound and hidden things. Meaning, God, you're the one who reveals, and, and Daniel was giving God glory for, for revealing King Nebuchadnezzar's dream to him. You remember this story. He said, God, thank you. you. You reveal yourself to me. You reveal, you don't hide yourself from us, meaning we can know you, God. Amos, the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, we read these words, or some of the greatest words when it talks about a God who reveals, and he tells us what he's going to do. The prophet Amos said that surely the sovereign Lord, surely the sovereign God, one true living God, does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. And in here in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, here's what we see. God keeps his word. God reveals to his people what's going to happen in the end times. And what we're going to see today is this. We are going to be introduced to this, this new character that we haven't heard of in Scripture yet. And it's the Antichrist, but we're also going to see that God is on his throne, he judges, and we see that Jesus returns, and that Jesus defeats the Antichrist. This chapter ends on a great high. But before we get there, and before Christ returns, it's going to be lions and bears and leopards, oh my, and one terrifying dreadful beast that the world will say, oh, no. Well, are you interested? Verse 7. Follow along with me as we read God's Word. Verse 7. Daniel, he has a vision from God. And Daniel writes down the dream, and here he is in verse number 7, and he writes, after this, meaning he's already explained the previous three beasts or kingdoms, after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, a dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I want you to write this down. Write this down in your notes if you're taking notes this morning. This fourth beast is the Roman Empire. This 
is Rome. How do you know that, Pastor? This is historically, this is what is, is known as Rome. Conservative scholars, which I agree with, this is Rome. Now, we learned in verses 4, 5, and 6, we looked at this last week, that uh, Daniel uh, uh, um, uh, had this vision of uh, three other beasts, and we know who they are through history, and we know who they are through King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. You need to know when you're reading this chapter that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, Daniel 7 they parallel with one another. It's the same thing that's going on. We're getting further. We're we're having more and more revelation as we read this from God. Verse 3, we know that the first kingdom that Daniel sees is is the lion with wings. We know that from Daniel chapter 2. We know it from history that this is Babylon. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. In verse number 4, we see a bear with with three ribs in its mouth, and it's raised up on one side. And and we know from Daniel chapter 2, we know from history uh, that this is the Medes and the Persians kingdom that came right after Babylon. And then in verse 5, we're introduced to a new beast that's called uh, a leopard. But this leopard has four wings and it has four heads. And again, we know from, from history that that was the kingdom of Greece. And it was led by this young man named Alexander the Great, which you studied in, in, in history. But here in verse 7, we're introduced to this fourth beast. And according to Daniel's vision, this beast, It's so ruthless and evil that there's no animal which can describe it. This is a brutal beast. Daniel can only describe uh, how evil it looks and it acts. Look look with me. Go back to Daniel chapter 2 if you have your Bible open. It'll be on the screen uh, behind me as well. But look at Daniel chapter 2 verse 40. This is the identification. This is, who, this is how we know it is Rome. Um, look, at, look at verse 40 of chapter 2, and it says this. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Rome was known as the Iron Legion. We know that through history. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. So, so Daniel knows from a prophecy through a dream in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and now through his vision, his dream, we know this is Rome. Historically, we know it's Rome. Now, let me, let me give you a little history here that I think is very fascinating, but just opens up Scripture. Whenever Rome conquered, whenever it went into cities, whenever it went into kingdoms, when, when Rome would conquer, they would literally crush their enemies. That's exactly what Scripture says. Scripture uses the word crush specifically. In the late 1700s, a man by the name of Edward Gibbon. Edward Gibbon wrote a book called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Now, I want you to listen closely to what he said. Edward Gibbon was not a believer in Jesus Christ. He actually put aside Christianity, calling it this was not legit. But listen what he said as he described the Roman Empire, which Daniel is referencing. He says this, The strength of Aurelian, a Roman emperor from 270 to 275 B.C., he says this, The strength of Aurelian crushed on every side the enemies of Rome. So what we see from history, we see a non-believer using the very same description that God uses when he gave the dream and the vision to Daniel. Do you see it? We're getting a picture that Rome crushed everybody. Later on, he would say this as a gender rule of practice. Rome literally destroyed civilizations, killing by the thousands and making slaves of hundreds and thousands. The point is that when in history, when Rome defeated a nation, it crushed the nation. It destroyed the nation instead of embracing it. Turn over with me to the New Testament. Go to Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bibles open, go to Matthew chapter 2. Let me show you from history the impact of Rome that it had on its leaders and and how they crushed and how they wanted to destroy everybody. In Matthew chapter 2, we, uh, we read of the story of the birth of Jesus. We read of the story of uh, the visit of uh, these wise men, um, uh, these magi. These men saw a star in the east, and they come, and they travel to Bethlehem and, or to Jerusalem, and they, they come in contact with a king by the name of Herod. And they say, oh, King Herod, tell me, where, where is this baby that is born who's going to be the king? And Herod, you remember this? Herod said this. You know, I'm not really sure, but once you find this baby, the king, remember what he says? 
come back and tell me so that what? I can worship him. Well, we know he's lying, right? Well, the wise men, the magi, they, they found where, where Jesus was born in Bethlehem or wherever he was living at the time. And in another dream, God revealed himself. Huh, you catch a theme? God revealed himself, told them what he was going to do, and they said, don't go back to visit Herod. Now look at verse number 16. Now look at Herod's reaction. He's enraged. Verse 16 says, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the magi, he became very enraged. It literally means his blood boiled. Anybody know what I'm talking about? His blood boiled. And he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. And so we get the picture that this, that this Roman empire, this, this empire, this beast that would crush everybody, even wanted to crush the Messiah. And here's something I want us to point out about the fourth empire, this Roman empire, because many Many parts of the world are still under the influence of the Roman Empire. There has never been a world kingdom since the Roman Empire. No other kingdom has ever ruled the entire earth like Rome has. It's history, and it's what the Bible tells us as well. But one of the characteristic traits of this fourth kingdom, this beast that devours, it crushes, iron teeth, later on in chapter 7, it's going to say he has claws of bronze. One of the key characteristic traits of this fourth kingdom is that of infanticide. Well, what is infanticide? Infanticide is the killing of infants. See, one of the reasons I believe that, that Daniel cannot describe this beast, he cannot give an animal to this beast is because you cannot adequately describe the sickness of a kingdom that kills infants. Are you with me? You can't describe that. You can't picture the sickness. Woe to the kingdoms. Woe to the governments. Woe to the nations that cultivate a culture of death. This fourth kingdom that we see here in Daniel chapter 7 is not only brutal, but it's different. Look with me in verse number 7 again at the end of verse 7. And it says, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it. Now, why is it different? We can kind of understand it's brutal, the brutality of it. The previous kingdoms were brutal. There's been other kingdoms that have been brutal as well, but, but what makes it different? Well, here's the great thing about Scripture is that it will tell us. So when you read something and you go, why is it different? You have to look at Scripture to allow Scripture to tell you why it is different. Well, the Scripture tells us that this kingdom, this beast is different because it's not a single nation like the other beasts and kingdoms. Instead, look at verse 7, it says, it had ten horns. It has ten horns. Now, now I say that, I go, man, what in the world? That doesn't make sense to me when I'm reading this. And when you read prophecy, when you read prophecy, there's a lot of things that you don't understand, and I don't understand. But when you read it, here's a key, a key point in interpretation. When you read prophecy, when you read Scripture, you must allow Scripture, you must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's a key component of biblical theology and interpretation. See, too many times in theology and in churches and in our lives, if we don't understand what Scripture says, we just make it up. Right? Have you ever used this phrase in your small group before? You're reading Scripture, and then somebody, they mean well, you may mean well when you say this. You'll say, hey, we just read a passage, and you ask this question, what does that mean to you? Have you ever used that before? And everybody looks down at their feet right now, yes. That's an incorrect question. Because when you correctly interpret Scripture, it really doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what Scripture says it means. Amen? Are you with me this morning? Are you still excited that Texas Tech won yesterday? You better be. 
All right? Well, if you don't know what it means, you just keep reading Scripture. So it's different. It's, it's brutal. It's a different kingdom. We, we've never seen it before. So what makes it different? It has, it has ten horns. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, if you keep reading chapter 7, go over to chapter 7, verse 24. Because in the last part of the chapter, we get the interpretation of the dream, of the vision. And in verse 24, amazing, God tells you what it means. He reveals himself. He reveals to Daniel. He reveals it to me. He reveals it to you. Verse 24 says this, As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, that's the fourth beast kingdom, what does it say next? Ten kings will arise. Congratulations, you have just correctly interpreted Scripture. Because it tells you what it means. These ten horns that Daniel has seen, it is going to be ten kings that arise out of this Roman kingdom. Now, historically, historically, there has never been on record in the Roman Roman Empire that at any time they had ten kings ruling at one time. So what does that tell you? Put your thinking hats on. What does that tell you? It tells you that's still to come. Are you with me? So Daniel is seeing way into the future, and he's, and he's looking way into the future, and God's given this to him. Now, here's the great thing, and I told you this already. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 parallel with one another. Let's put the statue back up on the screen here for just a second, Daniel chapter 2. The ten kings, or the ten horns, um, uh, really relate to uh, the feet of iron and clay of the ten toes in the statue of Daniel chapter 2. Now, here's what we know from the statue in Daniel chapter 2. We're comparing this to Daniel chapter 7, so we understand. The statue, the head of gold is Babylon. That's the lion with the wings, right? Are you with me? Okay, the second kingdom is the arms, uh, chest and arms of silver. That's the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. That's the bear with the three ribs raised up on one side. Then you have the belly and thighs of bronze, which is the kingdom of Greece. That's the leopards. There's your lions, your bears, and your leopards. Oh my, there you go. And then you have the legs of iron. That's the kingdom of Rome. Question, has the ancient kingdom of Rome existed? Look at your neighbor and say, yeah, I think so. I read it in my history book. Yes. Absolutely. We know from history that Rome existed, but the kingdom of Rome ended around 1400. Huh. So, when we look at this statue and we look at Daniel chapter 7, it's got to tell us where we are in history. Amen? So, in history, we are somewhere near the feet the ten toes, the ten horns of this new kingdom. Are you with me? Now let's pull this together. Because here, I'm going to give you another, another lesson in, in eschatology. This is eschatology 101. Before Jesus Christ returns, there are two great political changes that must take place in the world. This, this is all from Scripture. There are two great political changes that must take place before Jesus returns. Can you go back to that screen one more time, Kip? Kip? Jesus is the crushing rock. Jesus is the stone uncut uh, by human hands from Daniel chapter 2. There's two political changes that must take place. Number one, the Jewish people must return to their homeland. Hmm. Has that happened? Yes. 1946, 47, 48 is when the Israel becomes a nation again after thousands of years. And so when Israel became a nation, guess what set into motion? I think Jesus is getting his bags ready. Right? But another thing must happen before Jesus returns. The second great political change that must happen in our world before Jesus returns, it is the ten horns and the ten toes, which is a, what I believe and what other scholars will say is this, it is a a, a new Roman Empire. Now, I know over the past several years, politically, (laughs) I'm going there, I'm just going to let you know, I'm just going there. Because out of this ten toes and ten horns, we're going to see in just a second that the Antichrist is going to come. 
But I know over the past several years, many people in the United States have called some of our presidents the Antichrist. You're wrong. The Antichrist is not coming from the United States of America. It's not going to. Does that mean that maybe some of our leaders or our country overall, can we have the spirit of the Antichrist? Just read the news today. (laughs) But the Antichrist isn't coming from the United States of America. So I would ask of you in in this church that that you would not say that our president or president-elect or whomever that may be is the Antichrist because that's unbiblical and that gives Christians, gives First Baptist Church a bad name. Are you with me? Texas Tech won. (laughs) All right. All right. So we see we are near the end. We are near the end. So we're just really awaiting the the 10 kingdoms. Now look at verse number 8, and let's, let's read this text. Let's look at this. Verse number 8. Daniel writes, while I was contemplating the horns, he's confused by the horns like you and I can be. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, you need to circle that and underline that, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man. That means knowledge, sharp, he's smart. That's what it means. And a mouth uttering great boast. I want you to write this down in your notes. Write this down. This is the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. You can write this down as well. I like this description of the Antichrist, and it comes from verse number eight. He's a little horn with a big mouth. That's the Antichrist. He's a little horn with a big mouth. Now, out in your notes of verse number eight, you might want to write this down. I think this is key. This is the first extended revelation of the Antichrist in Scripture. This is the first specific reference of it. There's always been some type of Antichrist on this planet. Let me tell you why there's always been some person who could be the Antichrist who's on the planet. Let me tell you why. Because Satan doesn't know when Jesus Christ is going to return. Amen? So Satan's got to have his man ready. So all throughout history, there's been somebody who could be it. Well, but in verse 7, verse number 8, chapter 7, verse 8, we see the first revelation of what we know as the Antichrist. Now, let me share a couple things about the Antichrist that we see in these scriptures in front of us. We're going to talk more about him over the next uh, week, a couple of weeks as well. But, but I want you to write this down about the Antichrist so that we understand and know what we're talking about. Number one, the Antichrist is an arrogant man who will attack the saints and will blaspheme God. That's his purpose. He will be an arrogant man who will attack the saints and blaspheme God. Now, when Daniel sees this vision, um, uh, we, we see the, the character of this little horn. And in verses 8, verse 11, and verse 20, one of the things that Daniel sees and hears about this Antichrist is, this, is he makes boastful words. The word boastful in, in, in Aramaic, because chapter 7 is written in Aramaic, it means big words. It means arrogant. It means proud. He is filled with pride. So the Antichrist is going to be full of himself, and he will speak big, big words. Not only will he be arrogant, look at verse number 25. Flip over to verse number 25. Not only will he be boastful and arrogant, speaking big words, he will also persecute the saints of God, and he will blaspheme um, uh, the Almighty. Look at verse number 25. It says, it's he, that's the Antichrist, little horn, big mouth. He will speak out against the Most High. Most High here is El Elyon, which means God is the God of all times. Can you see how arrogant this Antichrist is? He has the audacity to speak against El Elyon, the God of all gods. He will speak out against the Most High, and he will, listen, listen to this, wear down the saints of the highest one. The Aramaic literally means he will oppress the saints. He will wear down the saints like you wear out a shirt. Now, what I'm about to share with you um, will not cheer you up, but it's truth. And I stand before you this morning, and I do not want to be a pastor who preaches the Word of God and say to you that things are going to be better. 
I do not want to stand up here and incorrectly say that prosperity and blessings are going to come your way. Can prosperity and come blessings come your way? Absolutely they can. Amen? They can. But we need to see what the real truth is and what God's saying and what I believe that God is trying to reveal to us today here in the United States of America. It's all because of this little horn with a big mouth. And his goal, I want you to listen to me. Students, you need to hear this. Young adults, you need to hear this. Senior adults, remind us of this. The Antichrist has one purpose. It's to destroy everything that Jesus Christ stands for. Every belief, every value, everything. He will oppose that which means you and I will be opposed. We will be oppressed. And when you look at this text, and it says that he will wear down the saints, he will oppress them, it means this, that Christians, believers all across the world, we will be harassed until our lives are miserable. It means this, listen, church, it means this, one day, our religious freedom will be abolished. Anybody feeling good yet? That doesn't mean we don't stand and fight for our religious freedom. No, we fight for our religious freedom. But there's coming a day when everything that you and I have stood for, it is going to be abolished. There's coming a day when believers in Jesus Christ, El Elyon, the God of all gods, the one true living God, there will be a day, saints, when you and I will be asked to have a mark. Scripture says in the book of Revelation that those who do not receive the mark of the beast, either on the right hand or the forehead, you will have no economic value whatsoever. And then it says the Antichrist, through powers given to him by the red dragon, which is Satan, the serpent of old, the devil, it's book of Revelation, he will kill you. That's the goal of the Antichrist. Are we living in the spirit of the Antichrist right now? I believe we are. And the reason we're teaching this, the reason I'm preaching this one, it's God's word. We cannot run away from God's word. We will not stick our heads in the sand. But we need to be ready. We need to be prepared because it's coming. Parents, we need to prepare our children. Parents, we need to make it our goal that our children, rather than the goal is them to make the NFL, the NBA, or you name it, our goal should be that our children would stand firm for Christ in the midst of persecution. Oh, that we would have that heartbeat to learn that our children would stand firm like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That they'd be willing to stand for the faith that we've poured into them. Verse 25. The Antichrist, not only is he arrogant, not only will he oppress the saints and blaspheme God. Look at verse 25. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in the law. What does that mean? Well, we're not really 100% sure 
what that means, scholars really don't know for sure, but, but here's what we know that the Antichrist will do. He seeks to change times and law. Question, who created time and law? And when the Antichrist reigns, he will change the laws that will attack the moral foundations of our society. Wrong will be right, and right will become wrong. Well, the second thing we learn in our text about the Antichrist is this. He will be in total power, complete control for three and a half years. He will be in complete control for three and a half years. Look at verse number 25 again. Verse number 25 says this, and they will be given, they means uh, the kings, the kingdoms, the world, believers, the nations, and they will be given into his hand for, here you go, here's a prophetic phrase, time, times, and half a time. Time is one year, times is two years, put those together, that's three and half a time, half a year. This is a three and a half year period in which the Antichrist will completely rule. Now, before Jesus Christ returns, are we close to that time? Absolutely we are. And what we have studied and what we've seen so far in Daniel chapter 7 is before Jesus Christ returns, it's going to get tough. But there is an old Billy Ocean song. You may know who Billy Ocean is. If you don't, Google it and Google the song. Billy Ocean. He said, he, he wrote a song that says this, when the going gets tough, the tough get, apparently you know that song. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, let me show you why the tough, and I identify the tough as the believers. We have to be tough. We need to know prophecy. We need to know Scripture. We need to be strong. We need to know God's Word, and we need to be tough. And we believers, we, we need to know that when, 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 when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Why can we get going? Why can we, in the midst of this antichrist spirit that's in our world, that is ultimately going to come in one man from this what uh, a, 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 a European kingdom where I believe and scholars believe that this antichrist is going to come from, how can we remain tough? Well, uh, verses 9 through 14 are going to tell us why. And I want you to write this down, okay? Here's why we can get tough and why we can get tough when it is getting uh, when the whole life is getting tough as well. This little horn with a big mouth, he's going to get destroyed. Amen? He's going to get destroyed, just like Texas Tech destroyed Baylor yesterday by one point. Amen? It doesn't matter how you win, as long as what? It's a, it's a win. Well, let's talk about feeling good about winning, all right? Look at verses 9 through 14. Fasten your seatbelts because this is when it gets exciting, all right? We're just going to walk through this text. This is so good. Are you with me? Verse 9, I, Daniel, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who do you think the Ancient of Days is? Say, God the Father. You're exactly right. That's God the Father. God, the Ancient of Days, this is consistent with what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, when he said this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. That's the ancient of days. So God, the ancient of days, who has seen these visions, who has, or these beasts, these kingdoms, he sees all of this. He looks down upon the kingdoms. So the ancient of days, the one who created time, the one who is outside of time, the one who is everlasting, look what he does. He takes his seat upon the throne, which means it's judgment time. It's judgment time. Now, in reading our text, who do you think is going to be judged? Say the beast. It's correct theology right there. He's about to judge the beast. 
And it's judgment time. Now look at how he judges because here are some characteristic traits of of the ancient of days and how he is going to judge. Look at verse number 9, okay? His vesture, that means his clothes. His clothes were like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. In scripture and in prophecy, white stands for purity, for righteousness and holiness, which means when this this God, the El Elyon, the one true living God, the ancient of days, when he sits on his throne, he is going to judge in purity, and it is going to be just, and it is going to be right. If I'm the Antichrist, I'd be shaking in my boots. Verse 9, his throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. Do you see something strange in that text? Apparently, God's throne has wheels. God has a wheelchair. Isn't that amazing? So if you have to have a wheelchair, you're just like God. That's awesome. That's great. Put some flames on your wheelchair because that's God's wheelchair. It's got flames on it. It's incredible. What is this? Why, why, does, why does his throne uh, have, have, have wheels on it? Well, look at Ezekiel. He describes the very same thing. And whenever you see the wheels around God and his judgment, this is the omnipresence of God. What does that mean? It means you can't get away from his judgment. The Antichrist is shaking, but even as he is shaking, he is still talking like he's going to win. So God has flames around his throne. Look at verse 10. And a river of fire was flowing and and coming out before him. This This is a symbol of judgment. Fire symbolizes two things in Scripture. It's the glory of God and it's the judgment of God. So whenever you pray, whenever you ask, oh God, send down your fire, be very careful. Are you with me? Listen, when you listen to worship songs and they talk about the fire of God, you be careful. You be careful. Because you need to know, are you talking about the glory of God or are you calling down the fire, the judgment of God? Are you with me? Some of you aren't. You're like, no, pastor, I like that song with fire in it. Well, we don't like to talk about judgment. We don't like to talk about judgment, but what we see in this vision, because Daniel has been transported from from these kingdoms, now he is transported to, to judgment day, and he sees the ancient of days on his throne, and he is about to judge somebody or someone or something. And here's what we need to know, church, that judgment is a part of the gospel. Judgment is a part of the gospel. Are Are you with me? I know everything inside of you is going, well, yeah, but pastor, you, you don't understand. The world tells me, don't judge. Don't listen to the world. Don't listen to it, because that's not true. That's not true. We look at fruits. So when we preach the gospel, we must understand that there is a judgment for those who do not turn and repent of their sins and follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There's judgment. Well, look at verse number 10. Look at verse number 10. So he sees this ancient of days. Now get this picture. He's on his throne. He's going to judge with, with purity, with holiness, with righteousness. And then look at this. At the, verse 10 it says, And then thousands upon thousands were attending the ancient of days, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And so what we see here is that there are angels all around the throne. And they're attending to the ancient of days. And, and this number is, you can't even, you can't even uh, count this number. And they're all there around him. And whenever you read uh, of Scripture talking about a vision of God, you'll always see the angels around the throne room praising him. But those angels are also warning us about the judgment. Look at the end of verse number 10 when it says this. And the court set and the books were opened. What books? What books were opened? The scripture talks about that we'll all stand before God. And the books will be opened. 
got the Lamb's Book of Life. You want to be in that one. And then you have the Book of Deeds. You don't want to be in that one. And so you picture this. Listen, t- time out for just a second. Your roast is going to burn today. I'm just going to let you know. It's in the oven. It's going to burn. And the court set, and all those who gathered around the throne set, and they listened for the judgment of God. And he opens up the book. Now watch this. So this is Daniel. Look at verse 11. I think this is comical because I'm ready to hear the judgment. Then I kept looking because I heard something behind me. I, this little horn with the big mouth kept talking. Do you find that comical? I mean, the, the, the judge is in the courtroom. All rise. And you sit down, and when you sit down, what do you do? You keep your mouth what? Not that little horn with a big mouth. He's going to keep talking. He's going to keep talking, and he's talking and talking and talking. And then look at this. And finally, the ancient of days, he, he slams the gavel down. And he says, I kept looking until that beast, the Antichrist, he was slain. And his body was destroyed and given over to the burning fire that flowed out of the ancient of days. The little horn with the big mouth can't talk anymore. Wow. So what is this a picture of? It's a picture of the end. It's a picture of the end. This is what's going to happen. The stone that was uncut from Daniel chapter 2 is going to come down and it's going to crash that kingdom and he's going to destroy the Antichrist. Wow. Now listen to verse 13 and 14 and let these words fall over you in sweet victory. Listen to this. And I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days. And was presented for, to, uh, before him, and to him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom, so that all the peoples and all the nations and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and it will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. When Jesus destroys that Antichrist, When he destroys the statue of Daniel chapter 2, he will come in all of his glory. He will come in all of his power. He will come in all of his wisdom. He will come in all of his strength. And he will come and he will set up his kingdom. And in the vision later on it says, and in his kingdom, he, he, Jesus, the the Son of Man and, and the Ancient of Days, he will give the kingdom to the saints of the Almighty One. Which means one day, One day we are going to reign supreme with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. This is good news. This is better than Texas Tech winning a football game. Amen? Well, how do we apply this to our lives today? How do we apply this? Let me give you three things. Three things to apply this today. And I want to Tag this all the way back to, you know, we started this message talking about the Wizard of Oz and the characters. Do you remember that? We talked about those characters and we talked about the scarecrow if he only had a brain. We talked about the tin man if he had a heart. We talked about the lion if he had the nerve, he had courage. Let's use those three characters as a way to apply this to our lives today. Number one, the truth of Daniel chapter 7. The truth of Daniel chapter 7 should, number one, encourage us to study God's Word and use our brain. This should encourage us to read God's Word, to study God's Word. In the Wizard of Oz, the scarecrow who had no brain, he, he often fell, didn't he? He tripped. He was clumsy. 
Folks, so many times when we don't know God's Word and we don't study God's Word, guess what we do? (laughs) We trip. We fall. We're clumsy. Study God's Word. Number two, may the truth of Daniel chapter 7 challenge us to live God's Word boldly. That we would live God's Word boldly. That we would trust it. We would believe it. We would hold it true. We would believe it. We're attacked. We believe it. People say it's not the truth. We believe it. And that we are not afraid like the cowardly lion who is afraid at almost anything. May we as believers, may we know the truth, know that the truth will set us free, and that we will boldly live God's Word. And then finally, may we, through the truth of Daniel chapter 7, May the truth motivate us to passionately share God's Word with others. The tin man, he didn't have a heart, which means this, he didn't have emotions. He didn't have a a desire. There was nothing inside of him. May we learn from Daniel chapter 7 that we would be passionate about sharing God's Word with others. Why? Because one day the court will sit and the books will be opened. And your name's going to be called in one of those two books. And we need to live boldly. And we need to share God's word passionately so that our family and that our friends, their names will be in the Lamb's book of life. Amen? Amen. And my prayer is that your name is in that book as well. For Jesus died for you. He came to set you free. And he's come to give you victory. Now just give your life to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to to preach your word, this great text of Daniel chapter 7. Father, I pray that it will just resonate with us, that we would be encouraged to know God's word, to study it, to to know prophecy, and, and God, just give us a burden to know your word, oh God, that we may hide it in our heart that we may not sin against you. And Father, I pray, O oh Lord, for all of us in this room this morning that we, would be, that we would be a challenge to live boldly for you, that we would not be afraid, that we would stand up for the truth and we'd face the criticisms that come along the way. So many times you tell us, do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? May that spirit of the living God come upon us. And Lord, I pray that we would passionately share you with others. Because we want all people to come into a living relationship with you, Father. God, I pray, move among us. May we be your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.